not a rhetorical question, though it could be. Anybody ever get in trouble when you were growing up? No. No? Okay. Anybody in trouble right now as we speak as you're growing up? And I mean, and I don't mean like, oops, got a dirty look from mom or dad. Like trouble, trouble. Huh? Like you did something wrong, you knew it was wrong, you tried to get away with it, you got busted, and then you had to suffer the consequences of both your actions and the discipline that resulted from your wrongness. I've got several of those stories from my youth, and I'll only bore you with one today. I got a BB gun for Christmas one year. No, I didn't shoot my eye out, but I'm good there. But I did shoot some things I wasn't supposed to shoot. As for instance, I was sitting on my porch, and sitting on my porch in the swing, the house is here, the porch runs this way, my grandma's house is across the road this way, and I just happened to see a robin sitting on the fence. Little robin. Hello, robin. Not bothering a soul. And something in me says, <laughs> what is this? Okay, honestly, I didn't think I could hit this bird. Okay, an honest engine. Okay, sitting here this morning, I'm a terrible shot. And then I'm thinking, there's no way I'm going to hit this bird. But hey, let's see what happens.
better, and then I lied about it to keep from getting in trouble. And it was ugly. I'll spare you the gory details of punishment, or discipline, actually. We'll talk about that later. But today, we're going to see what it looks like when it's God and His prophet at the center of the disobedience and the discipline. Will read for us Jonah 1, and before we dive into it, Jonah is considered a minor prophet. And I just want to clear that up, but I probably should have done that in the introduction. Minor just means that the writing is brief. Okay? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel are considered the major prophets due to the size of their books, the volume of their writing. <clears throat> and Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, yeah, Zechariah are considered minor prophets due to their smaller size. Okay? So I don't, the reason I say that is we don't call them minor and consider them less important because it's in the Bible, right? There are no unimportant words in the Bible. I don't like red-letter Bibles. I get it. It shows us the words of Jesus. But there are so many people who say, well, I just live by the red letters. Well, don't. Live by all the letters. Live by the minor prophets and the major prophets and the Old Testament and the New Testament. So I just want to make sure we understand that minor prophet just means it's smaller in size. No less important. So that being said, Jonah 1. We're going to start in verses 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. <clears throat> so as we start into this book, you see pretty quickly, the pace of this book is fast. Bam, 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 bam. We're going to move quickly through this narrative. The book starts with the word now. It's almost like the writer's preface. Get ready, now. And the first thing that happens is important, and the writer wants to draw our attention to it. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. If you'll remember from the intro message from last week, and if you haven't heard it, you need to listen to it because it's going to help you understand the book better and what we do over the next four weeks better. What we said in that message is God is the focus of this book. God's the main player. If this were a story, if this were a play, God is the main character. It's not a story, it's not a play, it's historical narrative. And God is the focus. He is the driver of all that happens in these quick four chapters. And so he and his word are mentioned first. And his word comes to a guy named Jonah. Jonah was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. We talked about the divided kingdom last week the northern kingdom of Israel. And this was a time of prosperity for the northern kingdom of Israel. And Jonah had actually prophesied favorably to Israel's king at the time, Jeroboam II, that Jeroboam II would regain much land for the nation. And that happened. Kind of a golden period for the northern kingdom of Israel. And Jonah had curried favor because of the word of God with the king. And he's like, your kingdom's going to expand. This land's going to grow. And it happened. And some of that land that was regained for the nation of Israel was won from the big bad power of the time, the Assyrian Empire, Assyria. And now prophecy at this point in time had a flow of a message coming from God to the prophet and then the prophet delivering it to the intended audience. Now usually the prophet was a local Jewish Israelite guy who spoke to local Jewish Israelite people, usually. But we do see instances where prophets travel to other places to take a message that God had given. And this message that Jonah gets 
is one of those mobile messages. And God says to Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. So Jonah's probably like, yes. Because Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, the big bad Assyria, about 500 miles to the northeast of Israel. And we know from last week and from what we looked at that there was a lot of animosity between Israel and Assyria. A lot of fear from Israel going, the big bad Assyrian empire is probably going to overtake us, and they will not too long after Jonah's gone. So God says, quickly, go out and call out against Nineveh. Oh, okay. So a little background on Nineveh quickly. We see mention of Nineveh as far back as Genesis, where we see in Genesis 10, 8 to 12, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built, voila, Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and reason between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. So Nimrod built Nineveh. Okay, so that goes way back. This is an ancient city. And actually, Nimrod started another little building project we call the Tower of Babel. Same guy, okay? Interesting. The same guy did both those things. Um, ba -ba 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 -ba, going down here. Okay, so this city of Nineveh is near the modern-day city of Mosul in Iraq. And the fact that God was sending Jonah there had to be the most shocking moment of Jonah's life. Well, at least up to that point. Again, the only thing we know that Jonah had shared from God is that Israel was going to gain land before this. Now, he's being sent to the dread enemy of the land of Israel, Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. And when the word of the Lord comes, it comes as a command, not as a suggestion. Jonah, would you possibly squeeze me into your schedule and head up to Nineveh? I've got something I'd like for them to hear. Oh, you can't do it all okay, understand. That's not how God works, Jonah. When the word of the Lord comes, it comes as a command, not a suggestion. Arise! Go to Nineveh! And God's command is for Jonah to arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and do what? Call out against it. So Jonah's like, oh, this is one of those woe deals, right? Yeah. Call out against it? Why? For, God says, their evil has come up before me. It's a warning of judgment. Which if you're sent to your enemies to proclaim God's judgment, that's good, right? God's going to judge them. Well, if you know anything about God, which Jonah does, there's a problem with that mindset of God's going to judge him. Look at this interesting little snippet from Jeremiah 18. God says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. Now therefore, say to the men of Judah that have in Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you. This was Jerusalem, different prophecy. And devising a plan against you, return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. Now, that's pretty important. And watch that closely. God says in Jeremiah that.
that if a nation turns from its evil, that he would do what? Go back to verse 8. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. Hmm. God sends words of judgment against an evil nation, but if they repent, if they change, God will not work the woe upon them that his proclaimed would come. Now don't think Jonah doesn't know this. I would guess Jonah may have had woes and words of warning as prophecies before and had seen God forgive some people. And that's all well and good in Israel. But Nineveh? Oh, Nineveh. Jonah's not going to want God to relent for them. And Jonah knows God will if they repent. So go call out against them. Because God is saying... I want you to call out against them because I would like to see them repent. And we know they will. And Jonah's like, oh, I don't care to go and call out woe, but and when we get to the end of the book, he says, I, I knew that you would forgive them. So what does Jonah do? But, uh-oh. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down to it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Uh-huh. God's word to Jonah had started with the word arise. Arise and go to Nineveh. But, verse 3 says, Jonah arose, but not to go to Nineveh. No, he arose to flee to Tarshish. Now note this, from the presence of the Lord. We'll get back to that in a second. Now, where's Tarshish, you may ask? Well, it's funny you ask because I've got the answer. It's the westernmost tip of the known world at that time. Now, they're in Israel over here, Mediterranean Sea, Spain. Think Spain. Think the Rock of Gibraltar. Think as far west as he could possibly go to get away from going northeast to Nineveh. So Jonah goes the opposite way. And not just opposite on the map. He flees to Tarshish. And get that next clause, from the presence of the Lord. <laughs> You're right. He's not just trying to not go to Nineveh. He's trying to get away from God, away from the presence of the Lord. And that's fitting because it's Jonah's sin that is causing him to not want to do what God is calling him to do. And that's important. He's a racist bigot. He hates the Ninevites. And he sure doesn't want to chance them hearing God's warning and repenting and being spared God's wrath and being forgiven and receiving the blessing of God. Not those people. So, after being told to arise and go to Nineveh, it says Jonah went where? He went down. He went down to Joppa, which is a seaport town of Israel on the Mediterranean coast, down to Joppa, and then he found there a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare, and where did he go after that? He went down into the ship, down to Joppa, down into the ship to go with them to Tarshish. Again, in his mind, away from the presence of the Lord, because surely God's not in Tarshish, Right? Down to Joppa, down into the ship, on a quest to get away from God. 
where that's going to go, whether you know the story or not. Verse 4, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. And let me tell y'all what, breaking up is hard to do. <laughs> now, we're only in verse 4 at this point, and you see this pace. Bam, 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 bam. It's, it's neck breaking. A lot has already happened. God said go, Jonah said no, but, and write that word, Jonah's trying to flee from the presence of God as far west as he can, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the seas of the ship threatened to break up. Jonah's running from God, but God. Ho, ho, ho. Jonah's running from God, but God. And what does God do? Tremble in fear that his plan's going to fall apart because Jonah won't do what I ask him to do? Or not in agreement? Jonah probably doesn't need this crew so that he can unwind and relax, right? No, 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 no. God does what has to be done to turn Jonah around. Oh. So the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And note that this is not a tropical depression or a seasonal storm. There's no explanation for this storm except God. And God throws a great wind. Remember back in Matthew that the great storm made the disciples greatly afraid? Megasphobos. Well, here it's a great wind, a God wind. And it whips the sea into a mighty tempest to the point that the ship is about to Anybody ever been on a sea this angry? I've been in some choppy waves, and it's scary to be in choppy waves. I, we don't have a shelf to put this on. Because God's doing this. This is not a natural storm, it's a supernatural storm. This is not providence in action, it's God directly intervening to beat the living daylights out of this ship. Why? Is God mad at Jonah? Our knee-jerk reaction. Oh, we think God's Is God mad at Jonah? God's mad, so he's punishing Jonah. Alistair Beck points out that the only thing greater than Jonah's reluctance to do God's will is God's reluctance to allow disobedience from his prophet. I'm going to read that again. The only thing greater than Jonah's reluctance to do God's will is God's reluctance to allow disobedience from his prophet. That's good. And then amen. Through this whole book, all four chapters, while we can't with certainty say that it points out God's mood specifically, saying God was happy or sad or mad or whatever, we never see him acting in purposeful anger. His tone with Jonah is never, you idiot, or I'll show you, you loser. But rather, it seems to be a matter of fact dealing with Jonah in the midst of his disobedience in order to accomplish God's will, whether it be cooperatively or reluctantly. God will certainly make it hard to disobey him. And he does it out of love. Discipline for his glory and for our good. That's God's way with his people. 
about that later too. But let's move on to verses 5 and 6 to see what comes of this God-wrought storm. <clears throat> then the mariners, not the Seattle mariners, by the way, then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his little G-God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What the heck, man? What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your little G-God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. This storm was a whopper. And we can tell because the sailors, the mariners, were afraid. Anybody ever been on an airplane and the stewardesses are looking like this? Because everything's <laughs> choppy and bumpy? Always watch the stewardesses. If they ain't bothered, okay. If they start looking panicked, I just shut my eyes. <laughs> what do you think, sleeper? What do you think? If they look scared, I know it's bad. And here, these sailors, these guys who sail this sea for a living, who've seen storms, are worried about the magnitude of this storm. To the point that they're praying. They cry out to their own God, their little G-God. Little foxhole religion, right? God, if you get me out of this kind of deal. So they, they look to their God to help them. They look for supernatural help. And they also try their own efforts. They hurl the cargo off the ship trying to lighten it. Because a lighter ship's not going to sit as far down in the water. So if it sits higher, maybe as much water won't get on it. And our God Jonah must be just scared witless, right? I mean, this guy's a landlocked prophet from mainland Israel with no sea legs, right? He's got to be terrified. No. It says that he continued his downward journey, his non-arising, and had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Dude's out. He's snoozing. We actually flew over the Mediterranean one time. We landed in Schiphol Airport in the Netherlands and was... I'd say sailing. We were flying south down to Accra, Ghana, and we're flying over the Mediterranean. There's a terrible storm going on. You can see the lightning and, and the ship bumping all over. And I'm like, oh, the ship, listen to me. The plane's bumping all over. And I'm freaking out, and my wife is sleeping in the midst of it all. And I'm pale and one face. And she wakes up, she's like, oh, look how pretty. Talking about the clouds and the lightning. So I'm like, <laughs> I said, what do you mean, you sleeper? <laughs> In the middle of the worst storm these sailors have ever seen, Jonah's asleep. So the captain comes and he says, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. The captain is incredulous. What do you mean, sleeper? Arise. Look at that. Arise. He's heard that word before, hadn't he? Get up and pray. Maybe your God will save us because ours ain't working. Alistair Begg again points out that the prophet sleeps while the pagans will. Ouch. But anyway, the captain asks Jonah to pray to his God, hoping maybe Jonah's God is the one that needs appeased because there's all kinds of gods, right? Maybe yours is the one that's mad. Well, he's, he's right. Just not completely. He knows, the captain knows that this storm is a supernatural thing, a God thing, and he hopes Jonah can reach out to the God that Jonah has for some help. And they're about to solidify Jonah's role in all of this with a roll of the dice, verse 7. And they said to one another, the, the sailors, Come, let us cast lots, 
that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. With everybody up on the deck now, they're trying to figure out whose fault this storm was, whose God is upset and why. So they cast lots. It's like rolling dice, okay? And it would determine by blind chance, yeah, right, <laughs> who to foist the blame on. Blue, it's you. Black, it's me. Red, it's this guy. It's that kind of thing. So they're... And guess who the dice said the one was on whose account this evil had come upon them? It just happened to be Jonah. Snake eyes for Jonah, right? Now, was that chance or luck or fate or just the roll of the dice? Listen to me, church. The Bible does not teach us luck or karma or fate or chance. The lot is cast into the lap, Proverbs 16.33 says, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Do you know how many games of Yahtzee I've lost? I just needed one more six. God did that to me. Now again, don't just read this, and I made light of it a little bit, but don't just read this and nod and say, yeah, okay. Let that sink deep into your spirit this morning. Who made sure that the dice tumbled and fell and pointed out Jonah? God did. God did. The same God who told Jonah to go to Nineveh. The same God who hurled this great wind upon the sea. The same God who was orchestrating all of history to the praise of his glory. They cast lots. The lot fell on Jonah because God did that. Okay, so now what? Well, that's what these sailors want to know. Verses 8 through 10. Then they said to him, to Jonah, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, megasphobos, someone says, but single thought, and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. All right, Jonah, now we know this is all you. Who are you? Why is it you? And listen to the answer. I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. By the way, Hebrew is a term that Israelites call themselves. Other people may have called them that too. The word Hebrew means one who has traversed or crossed. Abraham's called a Hebrew in Genesis 14, 13, possibly referring to him having crossed the river to get into the land that would become his. He came from the east crossed the river into the west of the promised land. And obviously the Israelites have crossed a few rivers, right? A sea on dry land at one time. So, the name Hebrew sticks to this day. Well, Jonah refers to himself as a Hebrew here, a traverser, a crosser, traversing some territory in his time. And Jonah says, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. I'm like, shut up. We're about to die here. And I'm thinking here, is this Jonah with a good presentation of who God is? And I just see more of Jonah talking about who he is. I, I serve the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the land and the sea. That's who I am. I, I may be wrong there. It's not important. 
So maybe, maybe this good, maybe this bad, I don't know. But he is running from that presence of that God, right? Well, the sailors get freaked out because they know that he's running from God because he told them as much. I guess as he boarded and they're punching his ticket, they said, why Tarshish? He says, well, I'm running from the command of God to go to Nineveh. Here, here, Ninevites. We ate them, you know, me too. Welcome aboard. I don't know if that's what happened. But he had told them at some point that he was running from the presence of the Lord. And now they're scared to death because they see the results of his disobedience. Your sin always affects other people around you. Always. There's always collateral damage to your sin, even secret sin. Remember that. So now what? Well, let's just say that Jonah's downward journey is about to exponentially speed up. Verses 11 and 12. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you? That the sea may quiet down for us, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Mm -hmm. So, okay, Joe, you're running from God, and since you are, we're all bobbing up and down and wondering if our boat's going to bust apart, so what should we do so this sea will quiet down for us? It's all your fault, so what should we do to you? They say as the storm intensifies, the storm grew more and more tempestuous, it says. And Jonah says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. That was escalated quickly, right? Jonah knows he's in trouble. And he knows that him being gone takes the heat off of everybody else. The trouble's going to follow him. So pick me up and hurl me into the sea. You're going to have to toss me, to quote the Gimeline. The storm is because of me, so get rid of me and the storm will be gone too. All right, then so what happens? Verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. The sea grew more and more tempestuous. That's like the second more and more tempestuous that we've read. These guys just couldn't stomach the thought of chucking a prophet or anybody into this sea to get some calm waters. They seem to be nice folks, right? Cussing like a sailor. We don't want to kill a guy. That'd be terrible. So they rowed hard to try to get back to the land. But the more they rowed, the more and more tempestuous the sea grew against them. Gotta love their spunk and their concern for Jonah. These pagans show some genuine concern for human life. That's interesting. Pretty awesome considering how Jonah, one of God's people, is basically a racist and hates the Ninevites. They want to save Jonah, but it ain't going to happen. Might as well face it, fellas. Face it, they do. 14 through 16. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, Oh, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Wow. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord. So they've come to the conclusion that they are indeed going to have to actually do this. So they called out to the Lord, the God that they did not know or call out to previously, and they asked him to not kill them for doing what they're about to do, which is, in their mind, killing Jonah. 
And they know that what they're about to do is to please God. We're going to throw this fellow who was running from you overboard. And you, O oh Lord, are for this, right? We're just making sure before we do it. And they picked Jonah up, threw him out of the boat into the raging sea. And guess what? The sea ceased from its raging. Again, I think we compare this to Jesus calming the storm. Jesus speaks the word, the winds and the sea obey. These guys throw Jonah in the sea, and the winds in the sea stop their chopping. And it's calm, and it's quiet. Amazing. And these sailors are amazed, too. They know that this is supernatural. This confirms the supernatural state of the storm, because as soon as they did what God wanted them to do, God removed the wind. It says that they're amazed. They feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made, made vows. These guys see the calm sea and they're wowed. And it points their attention to the God who calmed the sea. The same God who had sent the storm and stopped the storm. And they're impressed, to say the least. These guys just met God through this storm. And they fear him exceedingly, offer a sacrifice to him, and make vows. I'll never cuss again, Lord, I swear. Were they converted here? It seems so. Which just makes Jonah's disobedient trip even more of a God thing. If God wanted to reach these sailors, he could do so even through a disobedient So these sailors sit in their ship worshiping God on a calm sea. But what about Jonah? Last verse. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now we're also familiar with this story, but we don't see how crazy that is right there. But again, stop and think about this. Boiling sea, wild winds, Jonah plops in the water, everything calms down, and Jonah's sinking, and God does something. Something else. He appoints a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and not a whale, just to be picky in particular, but a great fish. I don't remember who it was. Not a mammal, a fish. Whales are mammals, fish are not mammals. Sorry, I can't attribute that. There's somebody. Somebody. I'll put that in the notes. He appoints a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Not bird. 
appointed the fish to swallow Jonah. God did. God is sovereign over fish food. He provides for the birds of the air, right? What about fish? God commands fish. The fish answer to God. The dice rolls at God's command. The fish swallows at the same command. God is sovereign over everything. Everything. And so this fish, unlike Jonah, obeys God and swallows the prophet. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. It doesn't make good sense, does it? That should kill a man. Jonah should be dead. But you see, this fish wasn't sent to hurt Jonah. It was sent to save Jonah. This wasn't God being mad. I'll just talk about fish at you. It was God showing grace. It wasn't punishment. It was part of God's discipline, which is way different. There's a big difference between punishment and discipline. And Jonah is in timeout in the belly of this great fish for three days and three nights. Anybody ever done a timeout for three days and three nights? I push that. Never in the belly of a fish, though. And it's a direct miracle of God. I don't know how it worked, but it did. And we'll see what follows this discipline next week in chapter 2. But today, we're going to walk out that door with a picture of Jonah in the belly great fish. But before we go to the application points, and there are three of them, before we do that, I want to do something. I want to look and see in this first chapter of Jonah the things that God does directly. I'm just going to list them. Okay? He gave his word to Jonah directly. He commanded Jonah to go to Nineveh God hurled a great wind upon the sea. God decided the cast of the lot. Jonah said that God made the sea and the dry land. The sailor said it has, that, that God did as it pleased him. God made the sea cease from its raging. And God appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. You reckon that's a big God? You figure God cares about details? You figure God cares about everything that's going on in this world today? Down to fish food. We're going to read a little bit that well, the fish vomits Jonah out. God's sovereign over fish vomit. But he obviously doesn't care about what I'm going through. He obviously doesn't care about the details of my life or all this bad stuff that happened to me. Jonah's in the belly of fish going, uh, wait a second. Yeah, he, he knows. He cares. And he is deliberately And we're going to do this all through Jonah. 
These are not small details. They're big deals. And with God as the main player in the book, we have to focus on who He is and what He's doing. And keep that all in mind front and center as we move through the book and through your life. And as we move through these three application points. Three D's. D's. Disobedience. Discipline. And dilemma. Disobedience, discipline, and dilemma. First is disobedience. Now watch this. Sin is disobeying God. And Jonah shows us exactly what that looks like. God said go, Jonah said no. And not just no, he said heck no. Plainly no. I will not do what you told me to do, God. I will not obey you. You're not the boss of me. I make my own decisions. I do what's best for me in my perspective. So let me ask you a question. Was Jonah's sin fleeing to Tarshish? Yes. But that wasn't his only sin because listen to me. Our actions are results of our thoughts and our feelings. What happens outside is an outflow of what's going on inside. Jonah had racist thoughts and feelings about the Ninevites. So when God said go to them and announce God's coming wrath, Jonah said no because you're going to forgive them. So I'm going the other way. All that being said, listen to me please. You can't stop doing sinful things and expect that to be how you deal with your sin. You should stop doing sinful things. But just because you stop doing sinful things doesn't mean that you're not nurturing sin in your head and in your heart. I can quit saying racist things and have racist thoughts and feelings. And what you figure God's more concerned about? The answer is both. Well, I don't say that word anymore. How do you feel in your heart? You still feel superior? That's sin. And so quit saying all you want to quit saying, but deal with your head and with your heart if you're going to deal with your sin. Don't deal with sin by stopping behaviors. You deal with sin by dealing with the internals first. Proverbs 4.23 Keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flows the springs of life. Jesus said it this way. Matthew 15 Do you not see that whatever goes in the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And the heart, this is what defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. So stop doing all those bad things. Yeah, do the right things. But more than that, dig down deep and pull the root out in your head and in your heart. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Sin is sin. Sin is terrible. I don't want to think sinful thoughts. I don't want to feel sinful feelings. God, please help 
great spirit within me, David prays, after his sins with Bathsheba and having Uriah killed. That word create there means create out of nothing. Guess who can do that? Only God. You can't do it. You can't wash your heart enough to make it clean. But God, in a miraculous way, can create in you a clean heart from nothing. And by the power of His Spirit within us, can renew a right spirit within us. Only God can do that. And let me ask you this question, and it's convicting to me because I'm asking myself the same question. Do you regularly go to God and desperately pray for Him to rid your heart and your mind of the sinful stain that is there? Now listen, we're going to deal with sin as long as we're in this flesh. I'm not preaching perfection here. I may not always want to, but I do always want to want to. Somebody says. God, please create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Let me tell you what, God answers this prayer. And that's how you deal with sin. If you just don't do the bad thing so you don't get caught and get in trouble, you're not getting here and you're not getting here. And that's what God's concerned about. You get your heart right, you get your mind right, you get your spirit right, you're going to do the right thing. Disobedience from a wrong heart and a wrong mind. So ask God to deal with that. Disobedience. Second is discipline. Which is not punishment. Punishment is I'm mad at you so I want to hurt you. Discipline is I love you and I want to help you. God disciplines those whom He loves. That's good news. Even if it's a fish swallowing you. And don't think storms aren't going to come into your life if you're walking in disobedience. God's going to blow a wind your way and it's going to be awful and you're going to shake your fist at God and say, how could you do this to me? It's because I love you. And I'm more reluctant to let you continue in your sin than you are reluctant to do what I'm asking you to do. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, the writer of Hebrews says. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of Spirit live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share, listen, in His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by You reckon Jonah enjoyed those three days and nights in the stomach of that fish? I promise you he did. How do you think he referred to it later? Let me tell you what God did. 
just attractive fish is the toughest thing I ever went through in my life. Thank God I didn't make it all the way through. Praise him, he's good. Herb Hodges said it this way. If you can keep walking in sin, and God doesn't take you behind the woodshed and beat the hell out of you, you're not his child. Why? Because he loves us. And he wants something better for us. So that we might partake, share in his holiness. That's the goal. That's what I want more than anything. That's what I should want more than anything. Is it what I want more than anything? Check your head, check your heart. Disobedience, discipline, and finally, out of this chapter, dilemma. You know what a dilemma is? It's a two-sided problem. It's either this or this. If God is a good God, and if God is in direct control of all things, then why in the world is all this bad stuff happening? Why are there so many hurts, deaths, sicknesses, viruses, storms, Delta variants? And the dilemma is really a two-pronged dilemma. Four, I don't know. The dilemma is this. Either God is sovereign or he's not. Which means either all these bad and hard things are his purposes or they're not. Man has responsibility. Man is sinful. Man makes sinful choices and those sinful choices hurt that man and hurt other people. He's using it all. He 
he's in the midst of it all. But man, I hurt so bad. He knows. He loves you. And he hurts with you in the midst of it. And if he's not redeeming these things and making them all become untrue, which he is, behold, I make all things new, Jesus says. If he's not doing that, there is no help. Joseph to his brothers. Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it. That evil! We're all a bunch of Ninevites. We're all a bunch of rebellious prophets. And you've set your love on us from eternity past. And because
because of the great love wherewith you have loved us, God, you are causing all things to work together for our good, in order that your glory may be proclaimed here on the earth and in heaven throughout all eternity. God, we're disobedient. And God, you discipline us. So help us to face this dilemma that we're in with a square, firm answer. I believe that God is in the heavens and he does as he Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority.